Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Václav Klaus discusses the ongoing crisis in Europe. Charles Murray discusses civil society. John Stossel talks about the growing welfare state. Jason Bedrick lays out the real cost of public education. And Google's Jared Cohen talks about Mexico's use of technology in the war on drugs. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Some form of compromise is uh, presently emerging in the uh, U.S. Senate about immigration and how to reform that uh, system after the shellacking that Republicans generally received around the country. It seems uh, more important that ever that, than ever that they get on board with some sort of immigration reform to encourage immigration or at least look like they're encouraging uh, immigration. To talk about that, I'm joined by Alex Narasta. He's an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute and Edward Alden. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Gentlemen, welcome. So just to get started here, Alex, in terms of the broad strokes of what looks like it will be emerging, first of all, why is this debate important electorally for specifically Republicans to really get right? Well, I think it's really important for both Republicans and Democrats to get right. For the Republicans, they have a reputation, I think, a little undeserved as being opposed to immigration, Hispanics, Asians, etc. And they got shellacked electorally because of that. For Democrats, it's important as well because they promised they would do something. President Obama promised famously in 2008 to do something. In his first term, he did not. Now he kind of has to. All right. But in 07 and 08, it seems like Democrats were in control of Congress seemed to just want to let the Republicans sort of devour themselves when it came to immigration reform. Is that about right? I think that's a good interpretation of it. This is one of these issues that I think Republicans need more to go away and Democrats would benefit more from keeping around electorally. So what are we looking at in terms of legislation that is emerging? The bill produced by the Gang of Eight will have three broad strokes. One will be border security and internal enforcement of immigration laws, beef that up. One will be a legalization of most, if not the vast majority of the unauthorized immigrants currently here through a long avenue and a path towards citizenship. And the third will be uh, fixing future flows for both low-skilled and high-skilled laborers. The point is to draw legal workers and you know out of the illegal market in the future into a legal flow as well as into the increase of uh, high-skilled immigrants. Dan Alden? Just keeping in mind big picture, uh, the U.S. Congress and administrations from the Bush administration to the Obama administration have been thinking about this issue for more than a decade now. So if this bill succeeds this year, it will be the culmination of more than a decade of effort. And it's a big piece of legislation. If you look back over the last 50 years, there was a huge piece of legislation in 1965 that basically created our modern legal immigration system. There was an effort in 1986 to fix the growing problem of illegal immigration unsuccessfully and just bits and pieces in between that. So this is a massive legislative effort we're talking about here. The the bill that the bipartisan group in Congress, these eight senators, four Democrats, four Republicans, are planning to introduce in the next week or so will probably be as long as 1,500 pages they're talking about. So this is a great, big, complicated piece of legislation that's going to have pretty dramatic ramifications for uh, our immigration system in the future. All right, Alex Narasto, what are the biggest risks here? What are the likely pitfalls for lawmakers in terms of putting something together that feels temporarily like they've solved something and then leaves us with a situation that largely has not been resolved. I think the biggest risk is the uh, low-skill guest worker visa portion of this bill. Politically, it's a huge risk. In 2007, that was one of the main things that blew up and stopped the reform effort then that President Bush was so behind. It also, if we do not have a legal way for unauthorized workers or low-skilled workers to come into the United States and work, you're going to have continual pressure on the southern border. Uh, What you've seen now is that with a bit of a housing recovery and prices increase in housing starts, you've seen illegal immigration increase slightly over the last couple of years, I believe 13% in 2012. And that's driven a large part by the economic demand in the United States. Just to back up and, and sort of put this in a broader context, all this entire debate, as it has been for years, is taking place in the context of the failure of the 1986 immigration bill. So this was a bill that was passed by Congress, signed by President Ronald Reagan. There were roughly 3 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States at the time. And the promise at the time was we're, we're going to do a legalization one time 
we will create a tough enforcement system, both at the border and more importantly at the workplace, to make it very difficult for people without papers to get jobs. And this would solve the problem once and for all. Of course, the history as it unfolded was the numbers grew from, as I said, roughly 3 million in 1986 to more than 12 million by the mid-2000s. And there are really kind of two prevailing explanations for what went wrong. The first is that the enforcement promises were never carried out. And so what we've seen actually beginning in the mid-90s is this tremendous buildup at the U.S.-Mexico border. You, you go back to the early 90s, we had 3,000 Border Patrol agents. Today, we've got more than 21,000, 700 miles of fencing, uh, pilotless drones flying over the border. So it's big buildup on the border. Less done in terms of the workplace, but still the creation of this system known as E-Verify that employers are supposed to use to check the status of their workforce. So we've seen big progress on the enforcement side. The other issue here, and one of the explanations for what went wrong at 86, is it just wasn't responsive to the market at all. So you had this very healthy economy in the 1990s, enormous demand for workers, and very few channels, particularly for low-skilled workers, to come legally to the United States. So, so the fix that we're talking about now will be both continuation expansion on the enforcement side, but more legal provisions so that as the U.S. economy recovers, grows stronger, demand for foreign labor grows, there are going to be legal channels for those people to come and live and work in the United States. Okay. E-Verify, of course, is a 20th best solution to the problem of illegal immigration. The first best is, of course, more immigration. So, Alex, in terms of getting a robust guest worker program, that seems to be the thing that Republicans would be more amenable to or Democrats? Well, historically and right now, I believe uh, Republicans are generally more amenable to that. I think a lot of that reason has to do with uh, general union opposition to a lot of low-skilled guest worker visas, both in the past and today. Some of those grievances are legitimate. They do point out some problems with worker abuse while people work on guest worker visa programs, and that is important, and those have, have happened. The solution to that, of course, is not fewer guest workers or more regulated guest workers, but more portability of visas. That is allowing guest workers to behave more like you know, other employees in the labor market to choose employers based on how well they're treated, paid, etc. Now, we can't have them be as fully mobile as American citizens or green card holders. That would sort of defeat the purpose of a guest worker visa program. But we can increase that portability substantially going forward. I think one of the interesting points is to take a look at what happened in the 1950s. You had the Bracero program. You had a legal channel. And what happened was Border Patrol instead of acting as sort of a blunt force to punish people just by excluding them from the country, by expelling them, they acted as a funnel. And they acted as a funnel to force otherwise law-abiding, low-skilled immigrants into the legal market so that they had a legal pathway. They would oftentimes arrest people, especially during a so-called Operation Wetback. They would arrest people, drive them down to the border themselves, let them step over the one step into Mexico, step back into the U.S. legally, document them, and then drive them back to the farms the next day where they arrested them. Now, there was a funnel then to put those people into. Such a funnel does not exist today. Okay. So we have, to the extent that we are apt or likely to repeat the mistake of 1986. That's it? One of the things, you know, we say there's never any progress. I think if you look at the negotiations that have taken place over this bill, we've seen the potential for some real progress. I mean, Alex mentioned historically very strong union opposition to additional low-skilled immigration. This was one of the issues. There were lots, but this was one of the issues that led to the failure of the reform effort in 2005 to 2007, the McCain-Kennedy legislation at the time. This time around, the AFL-CIO and the Chamber of Commerce sat down some months ago and said, we've got to work out an agreement on this issue. And they have come up with the parameters of a deal to allow new workers in who could just be temporary workers, could actually decide to, they want to stay here permanently and apply for permanent immigration. So that's a big breakthrough. Now, there are criticisms of the deal that was reached. Some people think the numbers are too small, particularly if the economy recovers strongly. But for the unions and business at least for the moment, to be on the same page on that issue is real progress of a sort that we haven't seen on this issue before. And that's absolutely right. There is a lot of real progress. And what's telling is just in last March, Anna Avendano, who is the head, the spokesman for the AFL-CIO on immigration issue, she said that 
guest workers should not be part of any kind of reform. But then she go ahead and she went ahead and endorsed this type of thing. Now, of course, the devil is in the details. We can have a program that has very high numbers, looks good on paper. But when you step back, the process for actually getting those visas could be extremely complicated, lengthy, expensive. And we could have a system like we have right now. I mean, to give you an example, the H-2A currently unlimited numbers of low-skilled agricultural workers. We have most workers in agriculture, though, are um, illegal immigrants in the United States. The problem is that you have you know, four federal agencies, expensive. It, it's an unworkable system. So the numbers are sounding better than they did before. We'll see what the details are, though, when this stuff comes out. And of course, employers here in the United States are the ones who buy labor, and they would like to, they would prefer to buy hassle-free labor whenever they can. And it definitely speaks to the point of the difficulty with the visa programs. Certainly does. And that's one of the big things that definitely needs to be fixed. The quotas are a huge problem, but beyond that, the ease of filling them. And one of the things, though, that, again, I'm encouraged about, I'm not trying to be too optimistic here because lots of things can go wrong, but one of the things I'm encouraged about in the formulations they're coming up with both on the low-skilled worker side and on the higher-skilled worker side is to try to build in some market flexibility. I mean, historically, the United States has set quotas and they were absolutely rigid. If you take the the H-1B visa for higher skilled workers, the quota is set at 65,000. And that quota doesn't rise or fall regardless of how strong the economy is. You know, that was enough in 2009 when the economy was in full-blown recession. This year, the entire quota, you have to apply, employers have to apply April 1st of each year. This year, the entire quota was exhausted in three days. And they're going to have to go to a lottery to decide who gets it. Well, under basic principles that have been worked out as part of this deal, that's going to be a flexible quota. So if it fills quickly one year, the numbers go up the next year. Conversely, if it doesn't fill, the numbers will go down the following year. And they're talking about a similar thing on the low-skilled side, which it's not a perfect market mechanism. Again, there are a lot of questions about how you do it. But what you want is an immigration system that is at least somewhat responsive to market demands. We've never had that in the United States before. So this is definitely a step in the right direction. One encouraging point, I think, is, and perhaps this is a pure political play, is that the dehumanizing rhetoric that we have so long heard from, I think, for the most part, Republicans in recent years has largely gone away. Is that fair? I think that is true. They are taking a different tact. I think both sides are taking a different tact. I mean, this is an issue that is extremely personal for a lot of people. And um, Democrats have tried to emphasize a lot of the personal aspects of it successfully. And with great acclaim. And uh, Republicans have also tried to take a look at it. And you hear that from a lot of Republicans who have um, changed their tune in the last six months or year on this issue. I mean, you hear people in districts in places like uh, Colorado, like in um, places like Texas, where people before they had maybe 5% Hispanic district, now they have a 20%. And it might be politics, but it might also be that people from that district are telling them their immigration problems. I think one of the biggest barriers in this is people still have the notion that immigration to the U.S. is like an Ellis Island model, where you just show up and you click the box, and if you're good, you can come in and work. If you have that mindset, illegal immigration is truly perplexing and maddening. Why would people come illegally if they can't? But I think being so close to this issue and understanding how complex it is really opens people's eyes. I mean, uh, Chairman Goodlatte is right now in the House of Representatives basically running informational educational sessions for other representatives and their staffs to let them know what immigration law actually is. And I think now just the general increased knowledge factor across the board has helped people realize what a mess this whole system is. I would not underestimate the continued opposition to this among Republicans in the House. I think there are a lot of Republicans who will not vote for this bill. But but the difference now from what we've seen in previous years, it is a much more constructive debate. People are talking more about substantive issues. There's less rhetoric, as you say, less less dehumanizing name calling, all the things we saw associated with the debate over the last decade. So, I mean, none of this says it's going to have an easy time, particularly in the House. But, I, but this looks to me like the sort of debate that we should be having, which is a real substantive debate. Just to, so as we finish up here, Everybody seems to agree that high-skilled immigrants are welcomed to the United States. People understand very clearly how high-skilled labor coming to the United States from other countries can improve the economy. What they don't understand and where sort of the zero-sum thinking comes in is when we're talking about low-skilled labor. Is that – how do we change that? Well, I think uh, part of the way that we change that is by – 
constantly explaining and giving examples of how low-skilled labor actually works in the U.S., how it's good for Americans, how it's good for our economy. And I think most importantly, a lot of pro-immigration people explain immigration as if it's charity, as if it's something that we can do for other people who come here, as if it's we can legalize them, we can help them, we can bring them out of their bad situations. I don't think that's a good way to look at it. We can take a look at the mutually beneficial gains of immigration, how the United States improves by having a legal immigration system that works for low and high skilled workers, and how that's good for us and our economy, and how this is not charity. I mean, I do not want millions of immigrants to come into this country and go on welfare, to sit in public housing, to do things like that. We should do it because it's good for us and makes us wealthier and, by the way, safer as well. So that's, I think, is the the tack that needs to be taken when talking about this. I also think it's going to make a huge difference if we have a system that is more responsive to market conditions, because it's understandably hard to sell people on the idea of more immigration when you've got unemployment at eight or nine or 10 or 11 percent. And it's quite reasonable. You look at countries like Australia, their immigration numbers go down quite substantially as their unemployment rate goes up. That's that's appropriate. Now, some of that happens naturally because people stop wanting to come so much if they don't think they can get jobs. But you've got to have an administrative system that takes that into account. If we go back into an economy with, you know, six, five, four percent unemployment, a lot more public acceptance of the need for immigrant labor to fill jobs that are otherwise going to be empty. So I think having more flexibility is going to make a big difference, not just in terms of the system working better, but in terms of being able to explain to people why this is good for the United States. A lot of people I was speaking with, Emily Eakins, one of our research fellows who does a lot of polling work for reason and brings that knowledge to the Cato Institute as well. And she says, basically, you scratch the surface of people who say they don't like illegal immigration. You find they don't much care for regular old immigration either. But she pointed out that if you explain things in terms of, say, the needs of employers, that those very same people, their attitudes change pretty markedly in polling. I think that if you look at any developed country, actually, I mean, public attitudes on immigration are mixed. I mean, people like immigrants as individuals. Certainly in the United States, we're a nation of immigration. We have an an immigrant story at our heart. But I also think there are limits to the willingness of people to accept and integrate large numbers of newcomers. So you've got to strike the right balance here. And I think those public fears are not always illegitimate, but sometimes they're poorly informed. And so I think we're in the midst of a debate where I really think we are going to end up with a more informed public and better decisions as a result. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most interesting interesting results in sociology is people today look back at previous immigration groups like the Italians, Chinese, Jews, etc. And they'd say, oh, well, those immigrants were pretty good. Meanwhile, at the time, those people really, really hated those immigrant groups, but they look back to the Irish and the Germans and they're like, oh, those people are pretty good. You go back, the English, you know, the English descendants in America who were dealing with the Germans and the Irish at the time thought it was like the end of civilization. So we're just at a point where now the demon is Hispanic immigration and some East Asian immigration, mainly Hispanic immigration, though. So the next generation is going to look back and say, oh, those those Hispanic immigrants, that worked out pretty good. That was pretty good. But this new group coming in now in the year 2050, they're the ones that are wrong with the United States. And there is a generational divide you see in the polling as well. I mean, young Americans are generally more comfortable with immigration than older Americans. So you see this is something that changes over time as well. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Edward Alden, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, thank you very much. Alex Narasta, Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute, writing regularly on behalf of Cato. You can find more of that information, some of his recent policy analyses at our website, cato.org. After 10 years as president of the Czech Republic, Václav Klaus is now a distinguished senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He discussed the risks of Europe's government-led broad economic integration at the Cato Institute in March. It is for me, with a high degree of probability, the end of my more than 23 years long career in the Czechoslovak and later Czech top political positions, a career lasting without interruption from the fall of communism and the moment of the Velvet Revolution until last week. So I start my new life here with you today. I was extremely honored to be invited to become a distinguished senior fellow at Cato and I'm eager to fulfill 
this role. This lecture is just the beginning. I was asked to say a few words about Europe, and Europe has always been one of my main topics. Let me put the whole issue, the current European problems, into a broader perspective. More than a year ago, my book about Europe, mentioned already here, with the title European Integration Without Illusions, was published in Czech language and then translated into English, German, Italian, Spanish, Bulgarian, and Danish. And the British publisher called it Europe, the shattering of illusions, which was not exactly my idea, because I never had illusions about, about <laughs> European integration. It was not necessary to shatter my illusions. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, Roger, just I am disappointed that the book is sold here at a discount. You know, <laughs> I, I expected to, to sell it here with some... Additional, additional, <laughs> some, because there is a value added by being here. And so the, the, the British publisher called it the shattering of illusions, and the German publisher forced me to call it Europa braucht Freiheit, which means Europe needs freedom, which is something I don't mind, because this is part of my message in this book. Nevertheless, the book reflects my frustration with the developments in Europe. It discusses the European institutional developments from the Second World War till the outbreak of the Eurozone debt crisis, as well as the very problematic current reactions to it and their enormous costs. It also argues against the naive and excessively optimistic expectations of the economic benefits of territorial integration and centralization. This is one of the crucial chapters. Those benefits which have been considered as the main argument in favor of the European integration process. And the book discusses um, the undemocratic consequences of denationalization and communitarization of Europe. All the available evidence suggests that the economic future will not be easy for those of us living in Europe together with our families, children and grandchildren, who have therefore a genuine, not only academic interests in the European future. I would like to state quite clearly that the Czech Republic is a part of Europe, a member of the European Union, and a non-member of the Eurozone. I deliberately differentiate these three entities. They are different. I am afraid that Americans sometimes uh, mix up uh, those three terms. Uh, you can't be a member of Europe. There is no membership in Europe. There is a membership in man-made organization called the European Union, and it's necessary to differentiate those terms. What is relevant uh, for my country is the fact that almost 85% of our exports go to Europe, to a region which undergoes both a protracted economic stagnation and an acute sovereign debt crisis. Even with our own freely floating Czech crown, we cannot fully disconnect ourselves from the economic trends in the rest of Europe. To be able to grow the Czech Republic as a textbook case of a small open economy, needs a healthy economic growth of its main trading partners. And this is regretfully not the case these days. By the way, this morning, um, the Czech Statistical Office announced the figure for the GDP growth in the last quarter of 2012, expected figure minus 0.2. Again, we can't escape from the fate of the whole continent. 
the present economic situation in Europe is not an accident, is not accidental. It is a consequence of at least two things. It's a consequence of the deliberately chosen and gradually impaired European economic and social system on the one hand, and it's a consequence of the more and more centralistic and bureaucratically intrusive European Union institutional arrangements. They both form a fundamental obstacle to any further positive development, an obstacle which cannot be removed by marginal corrections or by eventually more rational short-term economic policies. The problems are deeper. As I said, I see the important part of the problem in the European economic and social system itself. It is more than evident that the overregulated economy, additionally constrained by a heavy load of social and environmental requirements, operating in a paternalistic welfare state atmosphere cannot grow. This burden is too heavy and the incentives to a productive work are too weak. If Europe wants to restart its economic development, it has to undertake a fundamental transformation, a systemic change, something we in Central and Eastern Europe had to do 20 years ago. The basis on which people vote rarely represents the true choices voters face. The differences between candidates are smaller than they might first appear. John Stossel discussed voter preferences, the welfare state, and spontaneous order at a Cato Institute City Seminar in New York this March. My talk title is Shining a Light on the Welfare State, and the phrase welfare state means different things to you than it means to most of Americans. It became popular during World War II when the Nazis had a warfare state, but Britain proudly had a welfare state. While many of us are threatened by that, most Americans like that idea. It's assumed to be good. We see the cost, but as the next speaker, another person I steal ideas from, Chris Edwards, has pointed out, it's not just the cost that damages America. Each program is damaging. They restrict freedom. They cause people to be dependent. We see this. Most people don't see this. You oppose it. You are not normal people, especially here in New York City. And this is how most Americans view Fox, now that I'm there. There's conservatives who don't care about the welfare of the poor. Republicans don't care. Libertarians especially don't care. They're just about business. But somehow in their collective minds, the poor are not poor enough. Not only must we reduce benefits to the poor, we must reduce taxes on the wealthy, take from the poor, give to the rich. Disgusting. This is simply how what many Americans believe. And now Paul Ryan puts out a sensible budget proposal that would balance the budget in 10 years. It's, I actually wish they would point out that despite what the New York Times constantly reports about the cuts in there, it increases spending 3.4% a year for the next 10 years on average. Inflation is 2% but government grows under the Ryan budget at 3.4%. It grows at 5% under the Obama budget. And yet that's enough for Paul Krugman in today's times to call the Ryan budget a cruel joke. Or Al Sharpton on MSNBC says, is he serious? This is a war against the poor. Shreds the safety net while giving massive handouts to corporations and the rich, exactly what Americans rejected in the last election. And that is one of the things that people did vote on. That's their perception, helping the rich at the expense of the poor. They did reject that. People want to help the poor, and they think, because they have lives and they don't 
read all the Cato research papers, they just assume that the only way to help the poor is via government. What the alternatives, the invisible hand, it's hard to get your brain around that. It's invisible for one thing. And few of you have read Adam Smith, I would wager. A growing economy helps people, yes, but people fall through the cracks. Charity will help, no, they wouldn't help enough of the really needy. People don't know that before the welfare state there were thousands of mutual aid societies that did help, and even during the depths of the depression, when America was so much poorer, nobody starved. People don't know that. Having said that, there is something to be optimistic about. For the first time in my career, I'm noticing, even in the New York Times and the Washington Post, among the silliest of media, a new, at least, recognition that maybe we have a spending problem, a budget, a deficit problem. In the reporting on the Democratic plan, even the Washington Post says things like, the Democrats would cut nothing. They would actually increase spending. This is progress. I hadn't seen this before, and maybe the country is waking up to this problem. But I see less progress or no progress on the other problem, and that's the regulatory state. We keep getting more. We got Dodd-Frank, that's probably the biggest burden on many of you, or will be after Sarbanes-Oxley. And in addition, we have a 1,000 pages of new rules every week. I mean, nobody goes to Albany, uh, no kid on a high school, grade school tour, and asks their representative, what laws did you repeal? It's all about what laws have you passed? And the politicians and the regulators feel they're not doing their job unless they do more. And we gradually get caught up in this spider web of little rules that strangles growth. And it's popular because our instinct says we need to plan the economy. That I can't get my brain around how you design a sewage treatment plant myself, so it makes sense that the smart people in Washington, hey, he went to Harvard, he should direct things. And what's the alternative? The invisible hand is invisible. Spontaneous order, I prefer that phrase from Hayek. But people don't know what that means. They don't think it works. I mean, I wager many of you don't really think about it. If I told you that I'm a, you're the regulator, I'm a greedy businessman, I have a new idea to make money, uh, assuming you'd never seen a skating rink, I'm going to tell, I'm going to rent an arena and have people strap sharp blades to their feet and zip around on ice at different speeds, young and old, skilled and unskilled. And the only rule is go counterclockwise. Your intuition would have you say, this just can't be done. This just will not work. It's not safe. We need government to plan it and to direct it. In Mexico's deadly war on drugs, the use of information technology has become widespread. For instance, once journalists became targets of cartels and reduced their reporting in traditional media, information began flowing from Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, and YouTube videos. After the Mexican government decided to stop publishing information about the numbers of people killed by organized crime, websites started using Google Maps to track patterns of violence. Jared Cohen is director of Google Ideas. He talked about how technology is disrupting business as usual in the war on drugs at a policy forum in March. You may find it surprising that a company like Google is here engaging in a conversation about violence in Mexico. Uh, well, my response to that is you shouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, five billion new people are connecting to the internet in the next decade. Let me repeat that again. Five billion new people are gonna connect to the internet in just the next decade. Those five billion people, for the most part, live in parts of the world ridden with the greatest number of challenges, where conflict is prevalent, where instability is rampant, and where repression is all too familiar. You know, this means that in the future, technology is gonna be relevant to every single challenge in the world, not just the ones that are sort of, you know, obvious for a technology company to work on. So there's this space in between philanthropy and core business that is currently unoccupied, and where we need more engineering expertise and more people to understand the tools that people in these environments are gonna use. 
We founded Google Ideas two years ago to fill this gap, to fill this space in between philanthropy and core business, and to try to actually anticipate the unique sets of challenges that the vast majority of our future users are going to encounter in some of these environments. Our aim at Google Ideas is really twofold. First, we try to play a translation role and bridge the gap between those that understand the tools and those that understand the geopolitical problems we face in our world. Second, we try to actively build products or prototypes that can help address some of the toughest and thorniest challenges faced by this next five billion. And we need not look any further than south of our own border to see that Mexico is a case in point. And the topic of drug violence in Mexico uh, is of deep personal interest to me. I worked on it periodically during my four years on the policy planning staff, and now at Google Ideas, one of our main focus areas is looking for ways that we can use technology to map, disrupt, and expose illicit networks from narco-traffickers to human traffickers to organized crime to the illicit arms trade and so forth. All of these networks are deeply intertwined, and you know, as much as we saw oftentimes silo one network or another, the reality is they're all sort of part of the same global illicit networks problem. Now, I certainly don't claim to be an expert on Mexico. That's what this panel is here for. You have individuals with deep knowledge and on-the-ground experience. But like many, I have a perspective, and I, I'll take advantage of standing here at the podium to share that perspective with you. About a year ago, Google's executive chairman and I had an opportunity to visit Ciudad Juarez. Now, most of my career, I've spent time in radicalization hotbeds in the Middle East and South Asia. Uh, to the extent that I've looked at violent communities in Latin America, it's mostly been gang communities in Central America or uh, in Brazil. So I was curious how a community like Ciudad Juarez, which has been so impacted by narco networks, maybe look the same or different. And there were three things that really actually stood out to me as surprising and different from what I'd experienced in some of these other violent environments. The first is the police who escorted us around, as well as the police who walked the streets of Ciudad Juarez, were wearing face masks. To me, there was no greater illustration of how deeply embedded fear is in a society than the law enforcement that's tasked to protect the population actually wearing face masks. Not to mention, you can't imagine what this would do psychologically to a population to stifle their sort of enthusiasm for engaging with law enforcement, since they actually do have to show their faces. Uh, the second is, it was fascinating to me to stand there in Juarez and look across the border in El Paso and see that it's really the same city with a wall going through it, which just reinforced this notion that this problem is in our own backyard and is so deeply intertwined between American society and Mexican society. And then the third observation I made, and I would say this is the most interesting to me, the most surprising, and probably the most prescriptive, which is the invisibility of the problem to somebody like me coming from the outside. You know, there was no equivalent of MS-13 tags on the, on the walls. There was no equivalent of, you know, 18th Street graffiti. There was no equivalent of, you know, a lot of the deification of radical leaders in, you know, different hotspots in the Middle East and South Asia. I asked one of the police officers driving around with us if he could point to something in Juarez that would sort of demonstrate to me or illustrate to me the presence of the cartels in this community. And he said the only way to actually, you know, sort of know that they're here is to talk to people. You know, there's no sort of visual representation. And so that's what we did. We talked to victims of violence. We talked to bloggers. We talked to people who'd been extorted, threatened, community uh, leaders, local politicians, and just ordinary citizens. And what we learned is that all of the data, all of the intelligence, all the information about where the cartels operate, where the activities are taking place, where the drugs are moving, it all exists within the community. There's no shortage of data. The problem is how to actually make that data public. And the problem is individuals are too afraid to report crimes because of retaliation, uh, not surprisingly. Second is they don't have, um, they have very little trust in the police. The police are, are often infiltrated by these organizations. And then the third is even if they do trust the police and law enforcement, there's very little confidence that if they report a crime, blow the whistle, share intelligence, that it's actually going to lead to something actionable. So why take the risk? Now, this, these sort of observations were somewhat disruptive to my thinking, but in a useful way. You know, and, and, and the reason for that is it immediately got me thinking about free expression. Now, in my industry, the tech sector, when we think of free expression, we think of countries like North Korea, Iran, Cuba, Syria, actively censoring their population's access to information, actively uh, preventing them from having access to a free and open internet and mobile devices. But this was a different way of thinking about free expression. You know, Mexico has a free and open internet. Uh, by all standards, it's a democratic government. 
So how can a country that is democratic with a perfectly open internet have a free expression challenge? Well, in this case, as illustrated by my three observations from talking to people in Juarez, individuals are self-censoring out of fear not of the state, but out of fear of non-state actors. And so it sort of makes you ask the question, you know, what's the point in having free and open access if you don't have freedom from fear? And this is the fundamental problem that people are dealing with in Mexico. This is sort of a, an interesting thing to digest when you go back to you know, the Google offices or go back to the tech sector and start describing what you see in Mexico. And five years ago, the challenges that we see south of our border were largely irrelevant to the type of expertise that you find at any technology company anywhere in the world. Now, it's easy to be pessimistic about Mexico, and most of what I've said so far is pessimistic. But believe it or not, I'm actually an optimist. And I'm an optimist because in the last five years, we've gone from the challenges being irrelevant to engineers to the biggest challenge now in terms of, of getting my industry involved, demonstrating to engineers that their knowledge and expertise, their computer science skills are not only relevant, but actively needed. Because the challenges that I mentioned where people are self-censoring out of fear, these are challenges where technology can play an enormous role. The wild card in Mexico is the enormous growth of connectivity, the rapid spread of mobile devices and internet access, and this is raising expectations on the part of the population. It's increasing accountability, it's increasing transparency, but it's also creating more options and more avenues through which people can actually intervene to help. The price of a public school education isn't exactly clear. For example, the price of a child's education often excludes expenses like, say, school buildings. Jason Bedrick, an education policy analyst at the Cato Institute, broke down some of the real numbers at the Cato Institute's 25th Annual Benefactors Summit. So today I want to talk about education spending, transparency, and choice. And I want to start with what should be a very simple question, and that is how much does it cost, on average, to educate a child in an American public school in a given year? I'll let you think about that for a second. The Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard asked this question in its annual survey several years ago, and this is what they found. They found that the median estimate was $2,000 a year. I can tell by your reaction you're <laughs> somewhat skeptical about this number. The average estimate, though, is a bit higher, $4,250 a year to educate a child in this country. Now, the reality, if you're, you're a smart audience, you may read the New York Times. <laughs> I'm kidding. No. If you were reading David Brooks's column on a regular basis, you may think that the number is actually $11,000, which is what the National Center for Educational Statistics reports as the operating expenditures per pupil in a given year. That excludes big budget items like, say, buildings. But the real figure, the total per pupil expenditures in a given year, is actually $14,000. Now, I figure you knew that you're a smart audience, obvious because you donate to the Cato Institute. That's seven times the median and more than three times what the average estimate was. So what we have here is a situation where the average citizen vastly underestimates how much it costs to educate an American student in the public school system. And this is despite the fact that we've had consistent growth in uh, education spending. This is a, an inflation-adjusted cost of complete K through 12 education over the last 40 years. So in 1970, it was about $57,000 to educate a child from kindergarten through 12th grade. That has increased to 2010 almost threefold, $165,000. And again, this is in constant inflation-adjusted figures. Now, this has practical consequences. So going back to the Harvard study, they asked, do you think government funding for public schools in your district should increase, decrease, or stay about the same? And what they did is something very interesting. They divided their respondents randomly into two groups. One group, they simply asked this question. We'll call them the uninformed group. 63% said, yes, we should increase how much money we're spending on public education. But the second group, they first said, in your district, we're spending about $14,000 per year. Actually, they gave them the figure for their individual district, so sometimes it was higher or lower. 
And then they ask them this question, should we increase, decrease, or keep education spending about the same? 43% said yes. A 20-point drop. And a very important drop, because you see it goes from a majority to a minority. Now this does have real-world consequences. Just take the 2012 election. This is a report from the NBC affiliate in Colorado, reporting uh, in the week before the election. They were discussing 38 ballot initiatives around the state to increase spending in 31 different districts with a total of $1.03 billion that could be raised if all of them were, had passed. Then they asked the question, well, how much money is the state giving to our schools? So first they turned to Kathleen Gephardt, who's an education activist, she's a lawyer, she's the one who is suing the state because the state is not giving enough money and they want the courts to tell the legislature you need to spend more money. This is a tactic that's been tried in a number of states, including my home state of New Hampshire. And she cites the Colorado Department of Education and says, well, it's about $6,500 per student. Then they turn to Ben DeGroe, who's at the uh, SPN affiliate, the little Cato in Colorado. And Ben says, no, actually the state pays about $10,000 per pupil. They don't have him explain or anything like that. They turn back to Kathleen Gephardt, and she laughs at this. And she says, oh, $10,000 a year would be unimaginable for almost anybody in Colorado. It would be a nice problem to have, but it's not one we currently have. So they summarize. Could be $6,500 a year. That's $2,000 below the national average. You know, Kathleen says that we're in the top 10 for wealth in Colorado, but we're in the bottom 10 for spending. Or maybe it's closer to $10,000 per year. We're not sure. Now, at this point, you expect, well, now the reporter is going to tell us what the real figure is. And he closes his segment by saying, like any good political debate, much of the issue will be addressed at the polls. This is not a political question. A political question, you know, what should the spending be? Should the spending go up? Should the spending go down? Should it stay the same? This is an empirical question, and they punted. Moreover, they're asking the wrong question. The question they were asking is, how much money is the state giving to the local districts? But the real question we should be asking is, how much money does it actually cost to educate a child? When you take into account local sources of revenue, federal sources of revenue, $12,000, over $12,000. Almost twice the figure that the first woman had reported. So what were the results of the election? 34 out of the 38 bond issues passed. In 29 out of 31 districts, 1.01 out of $1.03 billion. The case for limited government includes highlighting those institutions without which civil society simply wouldn't function. Charles Murray, author of Coming Apart, made that case at a Cato Institute City Seminar in January. The reason why limited government is really important. You can come to that conclusion from a variety of perspectives. You can do it because uh, you are a follower of John Locke and natural rights. You can do it because you read Robert Nozick's wonderful Anarchy, State, and Utopia with its thought experiments about Wilt Chamberlain. You can do it as well because you have simply an inborn kind of a gut-level feeling that people ought to be free to live their lives as they see fit. But in the battle in which we are now engaged... I think it's really important to pick up with the relationship between public policy and the pursuit of happiness exactly as John described it, which is to say, not a good time on Friday night, but lasting and justified satisfaction with life as a whole. And I guess I'd like to start by asking you to mentally run through the things in your own life that you take deep satisfaction in at this point in your life. If you do that, my proposition is this. Every single one of those deep satisfactions by everybody in the room can be fit under one of four categories. One is vocation, which embraces work in the strict sense of the term, the job you do for a living. It also embraces, in many cases, avocations or causes that become an extremely important part of your life. Second category is family. Third category is community. And the fourth is faith. There are probably 
not many of you in the room, that draw on all four of those as the central satisfactions in your own life, but I am willing to bet that the satisfactions you're thinking of fall into some of those categories. Now, the reason that this becomes important if you're thinking about limited government is when you ask the question, well, how is it that family, vocation, faith, and community are robust and vital institutions within which you can achieve these deep satisfactions in life? The ineluctable answer to that is that these are robust insofar as those institutions have the action. They have the responsibility for performing certain functions, and if those institutions don't do those functions, they won't get done. And in that relationship between taking satisfaction in something and having responsibility for the consequences of your actions lies the reason that you have to have limited government. Let's take a case not of the welfare mother. Let's just take a case of the people in this room and the kids we've raised, all right? We have had in this room different levels of engagement with the raising of our children. I hate to say it, I know it sounds sexist, but I think there's probably a gender divide in that regard, where generally speaking, the males in this room have not spent nearly as much time, number of hours engaged in raising children as the women have. In other cases, there will be those of you who are women, for example, who had uh, uh, demanding careers, and you did not spend a lot of time with your children, uh, the same amount of time that a woman who did not have a job did, just because you didn't have that option. Your kids turned out fine, no problem there. I am saying that the satisfaction you take in having been a parent is greater the greater your investment in that is. doesn't mean you aren't equally proud of your children. It means the sense of, I had an important role in doing this is different. And the same thing applies to your engagement in the community. If your community consists of four-acre plots and no sidewalks and you never engage with any of your neighbors, community is not a source of satisfaction in your life. doesn't mean you aren't happy. Your vocation and family and faith or whatever can easily fill up all the needs, but I'll tell you this much, community is out of the picture. Whereas if you are engaged in a community where things have to get done by the community, or they just won't get done, you have a source of satisfaction that is missing if you don't have community. What government does in this sense, what social policy and especially the policies of the welfare state do, and there's no way around it, is they take some of the trouble out of the functions that those institutions fill. Uh, they, the, the, the programs for support for single women take some of the trouble out of raising a child if you don't have a husband. For that matter, Social Security takes some of the trouble out of preparing for your old age. There's, this is not a fault of program design, it's what happens. The problem is that in taking the trouble out of things, the welfare state ultimately drains the life out of life. And this is a peculiarly modern problem. Until the last century, and remember, at the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of Americans were on farms. And uh, the more, far more than 90% of the world's population was on farms, usually living a subsistence uh, uh, kind of existence. Well, in that case, you don't have to worry about the meaning of life. Uh, you have to really work hard in order to stay alive. You really need a family in order to stay alive. You really need a community to be embedded in a community in order to stay alive. And you don't have much choice except to attend to spiritual issues because you see around you that you could die the next day. We obsess about the problems of poverty and disadvantage and so forth now, but you know what the real problem is in the modern world? In many ways, in the modern, wealthy Western world and the prosperous Asian world, increasingly the question becomes, how do you live a meaningful life in an age of plenty and security? You don't have to get married. You can have a, a, a serial sex partners. Uh, a lot of times you don't have to work very hard at your job in order to have a comfortable living. Uh, you don't have to be part of a community because the welfare state provides all sorts of functions that the community used to provide. And uh, you don't uh, have to worry about dying because we all live until 90 or 95 now, don't we? Or we all expect to. And we can just keep putting on th off the consideration of spiritual issues uh, indefinitely. What happens when you have that kind of society? We've got a canary in the coal, uh, coal mine in the called Western Europe. And what we have seen in Western Europe 
is what I call the development of the Europe syndrome. The Europe syndrome says that, as far as I can tell, says that human beings are collections of chemicals that at some point in time are activated and after a period of years are deactivated. And what you need to do is pass the intervening time as pleasantly as possible. And the purpose of government is to enable you to pass the time as pleasantly as possible. There is no sense in Europe, as far as I can tell, that life can have a transcendent meaning. Transcendent whether defined religiously or transcendent defined in the ways that secular writers, such as, for example, Ayn Rand, uh, see a, a transcendent element in human life. The United States historically has been different. The United States historically has seen life as having a meaning and, and the pursuit of happiness as consisting of the kinds of activities that, that John described. It consisted of the kinds of activities that I described in terms of the four institutions of meaning. What we have to, the case we have to make now is the case for limited government in the following terms. It is absolutely essential for everybody to have access to the raw materials for living a satisfying human life. Those raw materials still exist in plenty with no problem for the people in this room and for the population of the fortunate folks throughout the United States. Uh, in, all, in, in all sorts of ways, the policies of government do not impinge on our lives. Yes, they impinge in the sense the taxes are too high, uh, but we still have enough, we have a lot of money even after we pay the taxes. Uh, yes, there are all sorts of rules that uh, uh, get, get in the way of the family, but those rules don't particularly affect us. They affect people who are involved in government programs. There are all sorts of rules that affect communities, but the bureaucracies that attend uh, to those social problems in urban communities and poor communities don't affect our lives very much. And what we are witnessing, and one of the problems I describe in Coming Apart, is the degree to which, by taking the trouble out of things, we are seeing a collapse in America's working class communities of all four of those bases for the pursuit of happiness. We are seeing young men drop out of the labor force in unprecedented numbers. We are seeing people failing to get married in unprecedented numbers in one part of society. Among a population like the one in this room, more, still more than 80% of the population is married. All right? Among the white working class, and I'll specify white just so you understand this is not an ethnic or racial issue I'm talking about. Among white working class ages 30 to 49, only 48% are married now. Marriage has pretty much collapsed in that regard. Religion has plummeted in the working class. Uh, so for that matter has plain old honesty and, and the, the level of, of, of community life which depends on people being able to trust and interact with each other. All of those things in the working class of the United States have deteriorated markedly over the last half century. And the conclusion I draw from that is that this is not bad because we have too many guys on disability insurance, although that is bad in its own right, and it's not bad because the costs of welfare are too high, it's bad because we have fundamentally undermined the ability of a major portion of the American population to pursue happiness. That leads to a peculiar kind of problem, though, that I think faces the American upper class. We don't like to talk about an upper class in America. Historically, we've all wanted to identify with uh, the middle class. That has also changed in the last half century. I did an analysis of zip codes in the United States uh, based on the level of education in those zip codes and also the income in those zip codes, and I ranked them from top to bottom. Naples, Florida is way up there toward the top. What's happened in the last 50 years is that we have increasingly segregated ourselves into enclaves in a way we didn't before. Let me give you a quick example. In 1960, as in uh, 2013, there were certain neighborhoods that were the elite places to live in this country. North Shore Chicago, Beverly Hills, 
the Upper East Side of New York, Westchester County, that kind of thing. I took 14 of those neighborhoods, which in 1960 is where all the rich people lived, according to the way everybody thought about it, and I calculated the percentage of adults who had college degrees and the median family income. Median family income in those 14 neighborhoods, remember the ones I just named, all right, was $84,000 expressed in $2,010. That is not affluence, let alone wealth. The percentage of adults with college degrees in those 14 elite neighborhoods was 26%, which means that the typical couple in those uh, neighborhoods consisted of maybe a guy had a, the guy had a college degree and his wife had a high school diploma. In a lot of cases, both of them had high school diplomas. Now, what these numbers mean is not that the North Shore of Chicago wasn't where rich people lived. It means that those communities then were much more heterogeneous than they are now. Because in the North Shore of Chicago and in these other 14 neighborhoods I talked about, the median family income is no longer $84,000. It's about $160,000. The percentage of adults with college degrees is no longer 26%. It's about 67%. And a whole lot of those people have advanced degrees from the most elite institutions. We have seen a culture grow up, an upper-class culture, which is qualitatively different from the culture that the rest of the country lives in. And here's why it's a problem. A whole lot of you of a certain age, which means kind of my age, in this room, uh, are successful now, but you grew up in working class or middle class homes. So you're now in Naples, Florida. You have a lot of money, let's say. You still remember what it was like. You still can decode the signals. If you were put down in Topeka, Kansas and walking down the street, you can understand what's going on around you as you do that. How about your kids? To what extent are your children or have your children grown up in a world where they have had very little contact with the rest of America? They have gone to really good schools and you chose those good schools because you wanted to do the best for your children, but it turned out that those schools were one which mostly had other kids like them in them. Uh, They then went off to uh, college and they went to good colleges which, again, mostly had kids like them. Uh, You wanted your kids to work, but, of course, working a lot of times in the summer uh, is an internship. So you get an internship at the American Enterprise Institute or at Cato where you're around kids of the upper middle class. And then your kids go off from their current jobs, uh, from their, excuse me, from their colleges into jobs at good law firms or at good companies or the rest of it where, again, they are living in a bubble. And I raise this issue because politically we are getting to a point where it's harder and harder for us to make the case for limited government in terms of the welfare of the whole society. To take John's example of the bricklayer and to say that convincingly and with passion because increasingly the upper middle class and upper class in this country doesn't know any bricklayers. It doesn't empathize with their lives. So I am raising a very different kind of problem than I suppose you have heard all morning. There are all sorts of ways in which we have to figure out political ways to turn around a whole bunch of very specific, important policies. There is also something else that needs to go on. And it needs to go on in what I will call the upper middle class on up in this country. And that needs to be a re-examination of how we live our lives. And that re-examination does not call upon us to sacrifice anything in our lives for the good of anyone else. That would be really un-American. Rather, I want us to reconsider what constitutes the greatest source of satisfactions in our own lives. We have gotten very good, we meaning the country and and the affluent people in this country, at living glossy lives. We have beautiful homes, we have interesting friends, we have great vacations that we take and all the rest of that. To what extent have we sacrificed texture in those lives uh, in, in turn for the glossiness? When I made this point in a, uh, in a speech in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, I got down from the platform and I was, it was reported to me that it was overheard one of the listeners saying, texture. 
Yeah, so I go home and, and my wife says that uh, our daughter has run off with a rock band drummer and my son is, is strung out on drugs and I'll say to myself, texture, texture. Uh, and, and, I, and I think there is something to be said for uh, avoiding certain kinds of texture. But insofar as, insofar as you look back on your own life and you prize and treasure earlier experiences in your life where you were deeply engaged in a community, not just a community of other people like you, but a community that had all sorts of different kinds of people and all sorts of different kinds of problems, to the extent that you have lots of friends from your youth who were of very different backgrounds and you treasure those friendships, and you treasure the kinds of experiences that went on as you were growing up in engaging in these kinds of things, and to the extent uh, that you look at your life now and say, well, not only is my life more segregated from those kinds of things than it used to be, but my kids' lives are really segregated from it. Maybe there are ways of thinking about living one's life which enable one both to continue to live a really comfortable life, but to be more engaged with the people around us. And that leads to my concluding thought. As libertarians, we can sometimes get too wound up in abstract principles. It, principles of human rights, of, of personal rights, of other kinds of things where we can say, I think very persuasively, that this is the morally right way to run a country, namely the way that the founders set out in the Constitution. But there has been another aspect of America which has been so important that it's been inextricable from the constitutional limited government. And that has been American exceptionalism, the optimism of this country, the belief that our life is within our own control, uh, our, our, uh, our attachment patriotically just to the nation itself, our confidence, our risk-taking, a whole bunch of things that go into an American personality that has been recognized around the world as different from everybody else. And a very large part of that has been a sense that being an American carried with it a core that we shared with all other Americans. Our identification with ourselves as Americans and, and wanting to identify with the broad range of, of, of this country has been bone deep. And if that goes away, American exceptionalism goes away with it, and no amount of policy changes can stop that. So I'm calling for a cultural change. How do you do cultural changes? You don't legislate them. You don't uh, pass laws to say, thou shalt uh, start to uh, uh, live a different kind of life. But America has a long history of achieving such cultural changes, and sometimes changing on a dime. And the reason I am optimistic, as John was optimistic, is that we are fundamentally right. What I have just said about the sources of happiness is right. What I've said about getting to old age, being pleased with who you have been and what you have done, I think is right. There is out there, I think, a willingness to respond to the kinds of arguments that we make. But it is absolutely important as we make those arguments that we do not do so from on high but that we do so as Americans talking to all of our fellow Americans. Cato University is the Cato Institute's premier educational event of the year. The 2013 program held this summer at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. features lectures from outstanding scholars such as Tom Palmer, Cato's new president and CEO, John Allison, and the Wall Street Journal's Mary O'Grady, with a special evening event on Capitol Hill featuring guest speaker Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. For more information and to register, visit Cato.org and search Cato University. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.